the last episode of the Good Day Sir podcast. We had a good run. <laughs> but after all the feedback and all the criticisms, we decided we just couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> did, we, did we get a lot of criticism? We, we are thin-skinned. Do we, we get a lot of criticism? No. Not really? <laughs> no, we're awesome, I wish man. we did. People love us. They we, love what we do. We got, we got some good feedback recently. But. I hope That's what I keep telling myself anyways. I look in the mirror and go, they love me. They really love me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so no, it's April Fool's. Even yeah. though when you're listening to this, it's probably not going to be April Fool's anymore. But hey, we, it's obligatory, right? That is totally not where I thought you were going with that. Was that, was that supposed to be April Fool's? <laughs> it was my no, April uh, Fool's. Oh. Yeah. You know where I thought you were going with that? What? I don't know if I can say it. Mm. The slight... A slight change to yes. our name. Yeah. The Good Day Sir podcast. We're, we're going to change it to the Good Day Sir show. Yeah. What's the reasoning behind that? I just like the sound of it better. Just like the way show. Podcasts there is are- there is a very practical reason behind it, though. And that is our Twitter handle. Handler. Our Twitter handle. I don't care what you say. I'm going to call it handler. <laughs> Go ahead, John. Our Twitter handler <laughs> is hard to find. It's hard to, hard to get us because it's Good Day Sir PDCST. So... Because we had to abbreviate the podcast because the name was so long. Yeah. And so it's going to be easier to convey and to get people to, to get on Twitter and provide us feedback and go back and maybe, you know, subscribe to the feed if we just called it Good Day Sir Show. Yeah. And we can get a. Did you already get that, by the way? I did get okay. it. Um, I'd like to merge the two accounts, but I'll have to contact Twitter and figure out if that's possible. If not, we'll just have to point everyone towards the other one. And you can't rename a Twitter handle? Not that I saw, at least not natively. You can't now since we <laughs> you took it. Uh, you know, I, anytime I think of a name or something, I feel like this immense anxiety that I have to get it now because there's probably someone else with the same idea right here, right now. that's going to take it from me. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that how uh, some of these uh, companies that uh, what do they do? The registrars, the domain registrars. Isn't that how they make most of their money? Selling. It's like you make you make more money selling used cars than you do new cars, right? You make more money yeah. selling um, existing registered domains than you do. Well, not just that, just like creating, like creating this environment where you better get your name on your, your, your name as a URL or someone else is going to get it, yeah. or you better get this before someone else gets it. Or yeah. they come out with some new, you know, what do they call those, uh, sub suffixes? Like what? Like the dot coms and all those, what do they call those? Those are top level domains. Top level. Okay. TLDs. I'm so intelligent on that stuff, aren't I? Do you have, um, do you have your kids' names registered? No, but at one point we... We registered my a modification of my daughter's name for my wife, which was Ellieaden.com. And I have since let that go. I wonder if like the way that we even do domains right now will be the same when our kids are older. Well, I mean, people people now tell you as soon as you're for all your kids, make sure you get their Facebook names or their Twitter names. I got, Graham's been on Facebook since he was like one. <laughs> which is against the terms of service, I think. Yeah. He's there. I couldn't even get my name on Facebook. I've been pretty fortunate to be able to get my name the way I want it in most places. Because your name is De Santiago. Yeah, but it's there's other De Santiago <laughs> out accent? there. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Let me try. De Santiago. Not bad. Yeah, not de, bad. Santi- de, de, de Santiago. The de is important. Yeah, the, it's got to be that soft. Yeah. De, de. And there's, there's, a, there's a... I fight with my daughter all the time because she just wants to say D. Well... Yeah. You got to at least pronounce your name. She has right. no, you know, Spanish accent though. 
No, oh, because she lives and here. She, and she does. She didn't grow up with anyone with a Spanish accent. No. I was like, your mom has a little bit of a, you can hear the little bit of a Spanish accent. Or maybe it's like a, you know, West Texas accent. I'm not even Which sure. Which is funny because she probably grew into that because my mom grew up in California. She might have picked it up. Yeah. But my dad, now my dad could definitely teach her if he, if he was just closer. Yeah. Oh, so um, what's going on with uh, whatever, whatever, whatever we're supposed to talk about on this show? News. So I can't tell if this is a legitimate article, a legitimate argument, or if this is an April Fool's joke because the article came out today. And this came to us by way of a Jaxian, and it's um, the intent to deprecate and remove JavaScript. By the way, so I'm, first of all, I never see any references to a Jaxian anymore. I know. Um, they were big back when... Like after what was the guy that coined the term Ajax? Jesse, um, what's his name? Yeah. And this is the point of the podcast where we Google things live. Ajax, Jesse, Jesse James Garrett. That's who it was. <laughs> so he coined this term. And then um, shortly after that, these two guys, um, Dion Elmer and Ben Galbraith. I don't know even where they work now, but what's funny about them. I've, I would always make fun of them like for years after this is they would always go work the same company. Like they worked at, I'm, I don't know. I don't remember now. They worked like at Google together. Then they worked at, they went and worked at Mozilla together and then they went and worked at Walmart together. And it's like, what kind of weird package deal is this? <laughs> <laughs> Dion and Ben, yeah. they need to be like a be, you know, be on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's what that reminded me of. All right. So what's the, what's the April fools here or the potential suspected. It, it, it's April such fools? a short article and there's, there's really no comments on it. So I can't even really tell. Um, but it's, it, it, I'll, I'll just kind of read this part to it because it's just one paragraph. And it says, removing JavaScript will lead to significant performance improvements. A lot of problems with inappropriate usage of blocking scripts. Code of the whole project will become more readable. Security will be improved dramatically. And battery consumption will decrease um, by 86.3%. I don't know where that number came from. This is totally an April Fool's, man. It, it has to be, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And then, it, and then it says like, you know, users, quotes from users about JavaScript. I hate cookies, JavaScript. This is all A and B spying stuff. Or I don't like remote code execution on my machine. Or my brother beat me with it. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> that didn't. Oh, no, it was my brother beat me with JavaScript for dummies book. So I'm against JavaScript. Yeah. Did, did that not seal the deal as far as this being an April Fool's? <laughs> Are you still skeptical? <laughs> it, has, it has a Google group dedicated to it. Oh, John. There's, there's comments on here. Okay. That, that makes it legit, right? <laughs> well, anyway, okay. So this, I say this is April Fool's. What was your, what was your favorite April Fool's that you saw? I didn't see any. I kind of, I've been, I've been under a rock, man. I've been working, but I did see one that was, um, they had, they made a sign and put it right next to the, the door when you like enter a, this part of a building and mm-hmm. it had a, it's where you had a, a key card swiper thing. And the sign said, um, we've replaced our key card. We've ad- we've added um, a voice recognition. So um, just speak your name into the key card from now on. <laughs> and so people are going up really, and they're like speaking their name into the. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. I, I do remember, and it, I just kind of saw it in glancing on Twitter, and I think it was one password that put out some April Fool's feature, which was I think some password recognition. Uh, based on a character. So I think they had like Will Wheaton on there as a password. No. So generate your password. It's like Will Wheatonized or something. Yeah. So, but yeah, I think, I think, I don't know. Maybe when I was younger, that, that stuff was a little more fun. 
now I'm just kind of like, eh. well, I've got, I just feel like I've gotten sick of all the April fools. Yeah. Like every year I'm, I mean, actually I dread it now. I used to look forward to it and think it was funny. Now I'm just like, Oh gosh, just get ready. But we Especially all, with the internet. We all have to do it. We have to it, do our obligatory kind of jab at, at, at the world. Hmm. We just did one. Yeah. I just did one. Yeah. I know you won't own it. I'll own it. So what are the other ones? Are these all related? These three links? They're all related. Okay. But I was going to say, it, you know, is there, is, there, is there even a valid reason to get rid of JavaScript? Well, sure. I mean, we could go into that if you want. Yeah. It's a completely broken language that we just keep piling new things on top of. And there's no competition for it either. Well, that's because it's so, it's, um, what's the word? It's, it's like embedded, right? It's right. That's what everything runs. It's what are the Jeff Hatt would call it. It's the assembly of the web, assembly language of the web. But we, we've overcome the need for assembly or the need to directly code an assembly. Um, yeah. So the, and it's interesting because, you know, programs like dart which is chrome's so i was going to mention chrome's right. you know it, it mm-hmm. kind of does what what some of these other things do which was compiled down to something like that and chrome will run dart natively yeah. it's just that no other browsers will so you'd have to run dart and compile down a javascript now what would be really cool is if browsers could run some type of like bytecode and that you could take any language it could be compiled down to that bytecode right um and run. That would be nice. But so then the, you end up you end up with the same problems with most code generators, and that's just with overly it's bloated. It's not code generator. It's it's a bytecode compiler. Compiling to what? JavaScript? No, compiling to some some kind of bytecode. Oh, okay. So the browsers would actually only run bytecode. So um, you're saying the the fact that Dart compiles to JavaScript isn't the answer. I guess that's kind of the same thing, except except JavaScript is is your bytecode. Right. And that's just such a crappy language to be your um, your Rosetta Stone, right? Yeah, and I, I think you know we, we we're in this age where we're developing a lot of web applications. We're develop, develop everything's an application, and that requires a lot of kind of. It doesn't require it, but as a whole, we've all been using JavaScript to accomplish a lot of that client side, yeah. mainly for performance reasons because we don't want to have to do that round trip to the server and back. Um, which means that a lot of these apps, if someone turns off JavaScript, they can't use the app at all. Yeah, and that's really um, a straw man nowadays. I mean, no one turns off JavaScript. You you can't turn off JavaScript. Everything will break. Nothing will work, and you will not be able to use the web or any applications on the web. It used to be, we used to have a big concern about, and that was like the, you know, uh, what was it, uh, graceful degradation and stuff. Mm-hmm. And if someone doesn't have JavaScript on, everything still needs to work. Well. Maybe if you just have an information only site or if you, if your site is, um, or some kind of thing that it's, it has to comply with some kind of government, um, accessibility thing or something. Um, but if you, yeah, if you're making your app in a way that it will work without JavaScript, um, that's going to not going to be a very modern app. Yeah. In terms of look and feel and, you know, especially when it comes to like single, single page applications. Yeah. Just the entire Mm -hmm. kind of, um, architecture and paradigm of the app right. is going to, you know, it's just stuck in a very uh, prehistoric yeah. <laughs> part of the web. Right. So anyway. we're stuck with JavaScript. Um, so I have some, um, a follow up on deferred revenue, which is a, I know a really hot topic that everyone really cares about. 
I've got information, man. New shit has come to light. <laughs> All right. So uh, the Motley Fool, fool.com, did an article, and it's, uh, said it's about, it's, uh, what is it? Don't be fooled by Salesforce's deferred revenue. It so was we, an April Fool's joke. Except this is, an, <laughs> this is actually, the article is about a week or two old, but I, I thought it was still kind of informational. So No, I'm saying the deferred revenue was an April Fool's joke. Oh, <laughs> I wish it was. Unfortunately, it's not. <laughs> but we talked about this, how, and it was kind of my speculation that, you know, Salesforce, they, they're... Their top line revenue growth, you know, percentage is dropping, right? It, and, it, and it has to. I mean, they're a, they're what a five billion dollar company now. You know, you can't keep, you can't double, you can't grow at thirty five percent every year. It's gonna, it's going to start, even if it's only to thirty percent or twenty five percent. And because even you know, if you're a six billion dollar company that's growing at twenty five percent a year, you know, you compound that year over year, and that's that's really good. But you know, thirty five percent is unsustainable. So. What they started doing was, and this, they started, I think, I'm not sure when they started this a couple of years ago, they started really referring to this deferred revenue number. Um, and the deferred revenue, this was, and this took me a while to figure this out because the revenue that is particularly the projected revenue was like in the, had dropped to like, you know, 25 or 26%, but their deferred revenue was still at like 32 or 35%, something like that. I'm thinking, well, how... If deferred revenue is still growing at 35%. How are revenue projected revenue is only 26%. Like, I don't know how to, it right. seems like those should be the same. Um, how can you have deferred revenue growth and, and not have actual revenue growth? It doesn't right. make sense. Well, the, what they were doing was they're increasing their contract lengths. Right. So instead of selling a quarterly contract, they sell a yearly or instead of a yearly at a, a two year or whatever. And so it makes, it's, it's just a better number. You'd rather show 35% than 25%. So they, this article kind of goes into what's that, what that's all about. Um, so yeah, so recently they're, they were at 32% year over year, um, deferred revenue growth. And they touted that. It's like, this is a big, you know, this is, yeah, yeah. This is what they really let in on the, on the conference call about. And of course, like the stock market, you know, was just fine with that. And their, their stock jumped up to, I think it jumped up to like in after hours trading, like 70, $70, um, from like, I don't know, 64 or 65. And since it's come back down, I think now they're, back down to like 65. So, um, but yeah, for a while it was, they were kind of riding that. Um, so however, their revenue, their, their guidance for revenue growth, not deferred revenue growth, but normal old school revenue growth was like 20% for the next fiscal year. Um, and so, you know, like if, if, if deferred revenue is 32%, how, you know, how is revenue growth going to be so much slower? It's like that same question again, you know, is Salesforce expecting a major, slow down in new customers or what, what's, what's going on. Um, so the point, the point here is that deferred revenue growth, while it can be a decent indicator of future actual revenue growth, there's a major flaw, which is that it can mislead investors into believing that they're growing faster than what they are, which I think is the goal, right? I mean, it's, it's almost, it's kind of propaganda, right? It's kind of like misle It's not untruthful. It's just misleading information mm -hmm. that's trying to convince people of something that may not be really true. Or it's um, just putting your best foot forward. Yeah. I mean, that's how the propagandist would describe it. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Salesforce, if you'd like to hire John for your PR specialist <laughs> at John, that's not the aggle. No, I'm just saying if you're sitting, if you're sitting out of a room and you're like, we got this call and we got these numbers, you know, which number looks better <laughs> a or B <laughs> exactly. That's what it is. <laughs> They're like, okay, we need a higher number. Uh, what can we, what metric is higher than this? Um, 
All right. So, and they, and this, actually the, this article, they, they have a, like a fictional company that they do a good example of, and they have this graph that shows how the deferred revenue can go up and up and up and up. If you're, if you're increasing your contract lengths while your actual revenue could be completely flat. Um, and so, you know, in this case though, we've got Salesforce with, and their deferred revenue growth is attributed to lengthening of invoice period. So in, in 2014, 74% of Salesforce's invoices had annual terms. So it's a one, one year term. And most of the rest of the revenue was quarterly. So I'm sure there was some that was multi-year, two or three year deals, but 74% one year, most of the rest of it being quarterly. Uh, in 2015, that percentage went from 74% up to 80%. So a pretty significant increase. And I think also in 2014 was when they first started including their contract term length in mm-hmm. their in their reports. Before that, we, don't, we just don't know. Um, so also, um, I guess in 2014, all their deferred revenue was current, meaning it was it would be recognized. So there's, there's current deferred revenue and there's some kind of other, I don't know what, I guess it's non-current current deferred revenue means that that rec- that revenue will be recognized within the next year. But yeah, so Salesforce's deferred revenue as a percent of revenue has gone up. So here's like, I guess the last recent quarters. Um, so 40%, it was, and then 42%, uh, 44%. And then I think their projection for, for, their 2015 year will be 50%. So deferred revenues will be 50% of revenue. So that just, that means that that deferred revenue number is going to continue to diverge from actual revenue. And they're going to predict, (laughs) this is not a bold (laughs) prediction, but they're going to, they're really going to always be leading with that deferred revenue number. Uh, So Salesforce has been lengthening the average invoice period of the past few years, which helps explain the gap between deferred revenue growth and expected revenue growth in fiscal 2016. Um, Salesforce gives, uh, guidance for revenue, uh, since they do, um, deferred revenue doesn't really offer new information. Um, you know, the fact that deferred revenue grew by 32% last year really doesn't mean anything. It's basically meaningless. Um, uh, so kind of bottom line here is uh, for Salesforce, perpetually profitless on a generally accepted accounting principle basis and trading at uh, about eight times sales, uh, the difference between 21% and 32% is important. Like if you if you're getting confused by the number, if you're, if you, if you see the 32% number and you, and you're thinking that, um, that's actual revenue, um, that could lead you to make a big judgment error in terms of investment, particularly considering that again, they're perpetually profitless. Um, the market should be focusing on real future revenue growth, not deferred revenue growth. Anyway, that's kind of the point of this article, but, uh, that, that, uh, comparison they did or that, um, they had a fictional company called Hype Sass. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. I wonder. I wonder how they chose that name. I, I have no idea. We yeah. should. You should take it over. I know. Build something on. See it. if it's available. Yeah. Hype Sass. Is Hype it available? Sass. I don't know. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I feel like Salesforce is. They're so good at that. And I don't know if it's just Mark or if they've got other people at Salesforce that are just like these masters of manipulation. And it's not, they're not lying. It's not, it's not lies. Right. No, it's just, I don't think it's just Salesforce. I mean, every company's out there is going to try to find the best number that illustrates how their company's doing, especially when it comes to investors. Well, so no one's really doing this, what Salesforce is doing. Like, yeah, but they're also on, on that in a very unique model, I would say. As opposed to like Workday and NetSuite and 
I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so what's the answer? So, well, I'm just saying, I don't think it's a unique model. I mean, it's, it's a newer model, but I don't see NetSuite doing that. They've been, they've been public for a while. Um, got some funny uh, Larry Ellison quotes for you. Um, so uh, I don't know where this was. Some kind of interview. But uh, so Larry Ellison, Oracle. What is he? He's not the CEO. He's that's Mark Hurd. I don't know what Larry is. Maybe he doesn't even have a position there anymore. But he says, I now believe that Oracle will sell more new SaaS and past business than Salesforce.com in this current calendar year, 2015. It's going to be close, but I think we're going to sell more in the cloud than they do this year. Interesting. Yeah. Because didn't Oracle, wasn't it, didn't they do like 1 billion last year? I don't know. I didn't didn't follow them. I thought, I think it was, I thought I saw that it was like 1 billion, which is, you know, what did Salesforce do for 5 billion? They did the race to 5 billion, man. Yeah, I know. How could I forget? How could you forget? Next year it's going to be 10 billion. (laughs) Yeah. It is absolutely my dream and I'm dedicated to being the fastest to 10 billion. I forgot this one. Look at the deferred revenue number. Uh, okay, so uh, he says, uh, Mar- or uh, Ellison says, I suspect that might come as a big surprise to a lot of people out there. Yeah, considering you only did a billion yet last year, yeah, then it's kind of a surprise. <laughs> you won't have to wait very long to find out who's going to win this. Um, this is another funny thing he said. I'm skipping down. We think we put multi-tenancy at the right level of the stack in the database rather than multi-tenancy in the application. Hmm. We think I know it's I've, when we'll, we can get into that on a little bit on a technical basis. Um, we think we have a huge advantage over someone like a workday that doesn't have a database, <laughs> which is funny because now workday they have. I remember this. They have a uh, who's our next door neighbor here, by the way. Really? Yeah, we should Let's maybe we should knock get, on the door. Ask them. Well, we should get see where's they, your database? See if they want to join us on <laughs> on a future show. Um, but uh, no, they have a. I'm trying to think what they call it. They, they, and it's just some marketing BS, but they, some kind of like object store or object oriented store or something. And it's basically just a term for kind of like a, a caching, um, a caching ORM is basically all like a cache, you know, a caching ORM with security built into it. But it's still, I mean, on, on disk, it still is all in like MySQL databases. Um, but they, they don't talk, they don't talk about that. <laughs> Well, there was a time when Salesforce claimed that they they had completely rolled their own complete database, and, and it, to a certain level, it's technically true because it's, it's application layers, but there's still a storage mechanism, which I believe is still, well, I think it's a mix now, but I think it's still primarily Oracle. Yeah, I mean, the other relationship stuff is all Oracle, and, I, and in the earlier days, they, Salesforce is at the bottom of all like their website and all of their. That's, remember, when people used to have slicks, like the yeah. like uh, brochures and stuff. <laughs> I don't think anyone has those anymore, do they? I'm sure they do. Really? But anyway, at the bottom, it would have like their, their vendor. So you would see like, um, like people that the technologies they use in their, when building their, right. The service. And what, one of them was, I'm trying to think of the other ones, but Oracle was one of them. And, you know, cause Salesforce, they're still trying to prove themselves at this point, you know, that, and trying to build trust. Right. You know, they're trying to convince people to go from an application bef- behind their firewall to, you know, put it in our database. And so they would always talk about Oracle. Because Oracle was is like the gold standard of database of relational right. databases, um, but you know, at some point, I don't know, like five years ago, um, that disappeared and they quit talking about Oracle. But it was just a year ago that they they 
and they made this real public. Um, they signed a like a multi-year continuing thing with Oracle um, to be their like the database platform for Salesforce. Right. So that's just the real. I mean, Salesforce they have a lot of other data stores. Um, we've kind of talked about some of that in the past, but um, the search. I think there's probably a, a search, um, a separate search system. There's um, all the wave stuff. Obviously, is in a different, completely different type of data store. Right. So is Oracle saying that they've basically taken what others have done at a, at a, at a higher level further abstracted from the database and put it, built it into the database. Yeah. So Oracle, I mean, which is well within, you know, their capabilities. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and of course, Oracle, they, they're a database company. And so they want as much value. They want to stuff as much value out into the database layer as possible. Right. Whereas the trend for gosh, like in 10 or 15 years has been extract everything from the database. Don't do stored don't do store procedures. Don't do database triggers, all this kind of stuff, because it locks you into a database technology. You want to be right. completely agnostic. You want to be able to, you know, change your database or just not, not get locked into a database vendor. Right. And it's also but hard you to, get, te- you get a certain amount of efficiency by letting the database do a lot of that. You, you can. And that's why you see, and that's one reason why look at Salesforce. They have all, they're using a lot of that value added database layer. Mm-hmm. Um, they use, I, you know, I'm sure there's all kinds of security stuff. They're doing a lot with stored procedures and triggers and things like that. And the, and the way you know that is because every once in a while you'll see an Oracle stack trace, you know, pop through the layers. That's got to be rare. I don't think I've ever seen an Oracle stack trace pop. You've through. never seen the ORA dash blah, 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 whatever. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Oh. I'm, I'm sure you have. Yeah, I have. Those do happen for every far few yeah. between though. And, and to get the performance, especially with Salesforce's security model. So Salesforce, I mean, that's, there's, I mean, there's things that there are situations for which their security model doesn't fit, but for what it does, they have a nice security model. Um, the flexibility, especially with some of the some things they've added recently, but the, but the fact that you can run a query on accounts and get back 10,000 accounts like immediately. Right that are for the context user, the accounts they have visibility to taking into account ownership and inheritance. What do they call the, um, not sought the hierarchy. Is it the role hierarchy sharing rules? Uh, well, that too, sharing rules, a manual shares, you know, all kinds of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. They're taking all that to an account on it, just at a lightning speed. Right. Right. That's, that's impressive. And that is Oracle. And, they would again. They, I, I'm sure they have also so much business logic and just stuff wrapped all around that database layer, store yeah. procedures, and all kinds of stuff. That it would be because I, I think they remember they they had an initiative to get off of Oracle. They were going to go to Postgres, and I'm sure they still use Postgres for some stuff, but it's um, it's not to replace Oracle anymore. They gave up. That's just too hard. Okay, so back to this thing. So, uh, uh, Ellison says workday kind of built their own little database <laughs> little <laughs> and that's what you're buying into when so you, cute i know and that's what you're buying into when you buy workday we built our own little database oh and he says we built our own little database it's called oracle uh workday has its own programming technology uh, we don't we use this technology called java so he's that's my kind of my argument with with sales you know salesforce and apex too it's like they had to had to build their own programming language right that is an advantage to having a lot of this technology built into the database because then you you can kind of let developers have a little bit more access i think 
And it all depends on the type of problem you're solving. Like sometimes you really just need to get in there and have do programming at the database level. Now I've always hated programming at the database level because you're usually done with a crappy language. I mean, you know, T SQL. uh, Yeah. I mean, just, Oh (laughs) my God. I've gotten T SQL to do some pretty cool stuff, but it ended up being such ugly code. It's hard to test and you can't, you know, when you, you know, if you think of like your, when you run your full test on your application, it's, it's the database tests have to run completely differently and they don't, you know, they don't, they don't plug into your test framework. Like, like your application code does. All right. And it's just, just what are you saying, man? The first project you and I ever worked on was me writing store procedures for you. I know when on a I web could, application, when I could get you to, to <laughs> join the living. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> I'm not even a database guy, and that's the role I got stuck I in. Remember asking, I remember asking about you. I was like, yeah, that John guy, he seems smart, but what's wrong with him? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? My mannerisms, my quirks? What? No, just like how you were just like not happy at that point in time with, oh. uh, with the whole, you know, I guess with the employment situation there. Those were, those were the, the crazy Ohio days. Yeah. Coming in, you're like, your head would be, be on your desk. We're in the middle of the cornfields, man. How can you not be de- depressed being in the middle of the cornfields? It's got to be a problem, right? Yeah. Places like, I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, I'm sure that some people are just super happy. That's make, but I don't know. Yeah. Like you said, the smell of like, um, manure, a- aerosol manure <laughs> sprayed over the, over the corn. Yeah. Um, good times. Um, I guess this is still the quote. I'm not sure. I can't tell. We built everything, everything from scratch, every single line of code in fusion HCM. Oh, that's their healthcare or their, um, human resources thing is, uh, is new for the cloud. Every single line of code where Fusion ERP is, is new for the cloud. And those new cloud applications are based on by far the strongest platform. Workday doesn't even have a platform that they sell. They have no platform. They have the platform that, wait, they have the platform that they kind of use internally. This, it's like, I don't know if Larry Ellison cannot speak in correct English or if whoever transcribed this (laughs) did a bad job. It's probably an error in transcription from a off the cuff Speaking engagement where you have a lot of different, just various pauses as someone kind of tries to rephrase themselves really quickly. So then it gets into Salesforce. <laughs> I'll give you an example of how strong our cloud platform is. Salesforce.com uses our cloud platform. I wonder if uh, Benioff would agree with that. Oh, my bell's too far away. It's going to go ding, ding, uh, ding. What's your bell doing over there? Uh, NetSuite uses our cloud platform. I mean, what do you think he means by their cloud platform? Just Oracle database. Is he calling that the cloud platform platform? I, I Yeah. Yeah. They are pro- in as a partnership between Oracle and Salesforce. I am sure there are features uh, in the database that that um, Salesforce requested and had championed, and that's what's becoming their cloud platform. I, I think they've learned a lot from from Salesforce. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe it's maybe this because um, this mul- cloud stuff was not on their radar. No, and well, in fact, they kind of famously re- yeah, re- re- rejected. It. Yeah, yeah, rebuked cloud. Um, and I don't think Salesforce uses their, I don't think Salesforce uses Oracle's multi-tenancy technology. I mean, Salesforce built their own multi-tenancy right. in the, I believe in the application layer 15 years ago. Right. Yeah. So that's, you know, if you, if you look at the things that the, the fundamental things that Salesforce got right early on, uh, good API, external API, mm-hmm. um, multi-tenancy from the ground up. Uh, and openness, all documentation right out in the front. Right. Uh, any sign up for a developer, anyone can get a developer account. It's all out there. 
that just came. Those are just the three that came to mind for me. But what do you think? Those are, those are the main three. I mean, I, think I mean, when I, we, st- I mean, because there was no workflows, there was no visual force. No, and I don't even think there was S controls when when we started doing this. No, it I, was the API. Yeah, it was yeah. you had this application, and if you needed to talk to something else or you needed a workflow engine, we were writing that for you. Yeah. But we had the API to do that. Yeah. We also, we also had a very loosely, uh, uh, I don't know how to say this, but the rules were very, weren't very strict on it either. Well, I remember the way we customized Salesforce. If you wanted custom functionality, we would some, find some way to... to uh, or script injections. Yeah, to sideload, a, sideload JavaScript. And yeah. <laughs> people would be like, wow, how'd you get your account screen to do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those days are gone, my friend. They are gone. They are gone. Oh, I think they prevent all that stuff now. Um, okay. Oh yeah. So Salesforce uses our cloud. NetSuite uses our cloud platform. In fact, every single cloud company of size, the top 10, nine of them use our database in the cloud. Workday is the only one that doesn't. So you put Workday in the top 10? I guess so. But he says, but tell me again, the advantages they think they have. And like I said, Workday is super proud of their silly. They have some, I'm going to have to look it up what the name of it is. Um, Oh, but there was there was one final thing on this article which is interesting. This is actually this is actually a Ben I think this is Ben Keeps. I'm going to say it was. Although mine the copy I have doesn't say who it was, but yeah. Forbes guy. Mm-hmm. Um So, he's talking about how every time he talks to Oracle customers, they the main thing they always talk about is how they want to get away from Oracle. <laughs> <laughs> like all of them. He's and, saying this? Yes. Nabin says that, that that's what, when oh, he okay. talks to Oracle customers, they're always just trying to get away from Oracle license fees because Oracle is crazy expensive. Um, but I think for in a lot of cases, it's pretty much the only, it's the only acceptable answer. Yeah. It's it. They're, they're in the same boat as Microsoft. I think when it comes to a lot of that stuff, they just have so much entrenchment in the industry that it's hard. It's, it's hard to quit them. Yeah. He says Oracle would be, uh, would see to be a hated vendor that no one can do without having, having your customers hold you in such low regard is always risky since changes in technology reduce your ability to bind them to your platform. Uh, so it's interesting. No, with no technical reasons to stay on the platform, the lack of business ones to do so becomes more obvious. But the thing is, is that again, gets back to the, the, all the value add that you can add onto a relational database that Oracle has. Right. Um, whether it's you know built on security, built in multi tenancy, you know program the programmability of the database, and that's what he's talking about. You know if your yeah, if your customers don't like you and they hold you such a low regard, they're going to leave. What well, do you think, Mark Benioff holds Oracle in high regard? No, he doesn't. But they can't leave because they have locked themselves in to Oracle, and it's I mean they they probably could, but it would take such a such an effort that it just wouldn't. It does not make business sense, right? And it would be questionable whether that how long or even if they could get back to where they were in terms of they still have the same features security everything else and performance right that's the big question mark and i don't know that i don't know if there's any reason to to do it i mean even considering now if you look back in history when oracle was pretty much you know balking at at the idea of the cloud and all those kind of things and now they they're offering these features and now they have these features and they're betting them into the database you know, Oracle, as big as they were, thought, we're the big guys. We don't see the industry doing this. We're the smart ones. You know, you guys are crazy. Yet here they are. They built this industry despite lack of support from that type of event, from from Oracle. Um, 
And now all of a sudden they're trying to play catch up. Now they're trying to get into the game. Now they're trying to offer these features for those type of companies. I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is even though Oracle or these kind of big companies didn't believe in the idea, the industry did, and it has influenced them. Well, I think Oracle had such a strong existing revenue base that they survived that five-year period of denying the cloud. It allowed them to survive. Yeah, yeah. Right. They kind of coasted on that. But I mean, I think Oracle and Microsoft both were the big guys who thought, you know, they were the ones driving oh, yeah. the industry. Microsoft they were the ones deciding what was next. Microsoft hated the internet. They completely rejected it. They were so, Bill Gates was so scared of the internet. I, so that's why I think companies like Workday going out and just trying something, you know, trying these new types of databases, seeing what works, you know, I, I think that's commendable. Well, and I, I think whether or not Workday is trying something new is, is questionable. I think they're well. If not, then why wouldn't they have just stood up some other relational database instead of going up? You know, well, my understanding is that at at rest, I mean, on disk, it's MySQL. Oh, okay. but they have this layer that everything gets loaded into, supposedly. But to me, it sounds like just an ORM from what I've seen. Hmm. But they they you know they they have literally like marketing slicks that to talk about this. Which I wish I could remember the name of it. It's something silly though, but it's like this. Object data, I don't know, object data in memory object database or something. I don't know. Um, okay, so there's one final point which I find interesting. So um, he says, What this means for Oracle's future is unclear. It could very well mean that the headlines of next year are, are already being written in terms of a hostile takeover of Workday or Salesforce by Oracle. Indeed, many conspiracy theorists already believe that the deal has been discussed and resolved by Ellison and, and Benioff. And that all of this theater, and we, we get a lot of theater from Salesforce and Oracle, is simply market manipulation. The theater is so entertaining. It is. I know, it gives us <laughs> something to talk about. I'm glad that I'm glad ben, ben is coming forward with the conspiracy theories. Yeah. I like that. It makes me look like slightly less of a crackpot. And that's always <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Need all the help you can get. Yeah, yeah I do. Um, yeah. Fun. Um, Larry's always good for uh, for laugh. He's always entertaining. Maybe he and Benioff should should compete next on Fitbit. Do a little Fitbit challenge. Yeah, I don't know. Ellis, how old is Larry? Not that I'm being ageist. How old is Larry Ellison? I don't know if he could compete with Mark. Is I guess my point. I don't know if he would want to. If that would make sense. But I don't. I, I don't isn't he like seventy? I don't think the, I don't think that's the way the challenge works, though. Is I mean, it not I think, just number I, of steps? It is, but you, people contribute in your challenge in the name of your challenge, and okay. that equals steps. So if you pay ten bucks, I think that's like a hundred steps or something. Gotcha. All right, John. Well, we need to talk. We have some follow up. We have John, some follow up. Um, so, so some of our uh, listeners um, pointed out. They pointed out I was wrong, man. Yeah. They hurt my feelings. Yeah. No, that's good. I'm. They're like, you're such an idiot. <laughs> you were wrong. Like everything like, you said was yeah. wrong. <laughs> How could you? I lost all faith in you. You're being fact checked. I was being fact checked. I, I did not like if it. The, if politicians and business people can get out here and lie to our faces all the time, then you know we can <laughs> we can certainly have a few honest uh, mistakes every now and then. I do have some defenses though. Okay, so let's let's lay lay the 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 background here. So, um. Who called you out? Matt. Okay. Matt, Matt Morris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So on, on the process builder, he's saying that, so you talked about the process builder last week because you had gone to the Salesforce process builder event. Yep. And in fact, some of the stuff that you talked about that turned out not to be right was exactly what Salesforce told you, right? You were just basically, it was direct information from them. Like the fact that um, process builder can, it cannot be deployed via metadata or change sets, right? Well, the, 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 the fact is that it, that was true of the beta release. As soon as it went, as soon as spring 15 came out and it went GA, that's when they added the metadata support. So prior to that, it wasn't part of it. But at the time you went to the Salesforce event, it was, it was already available, right? Um, yeah, but, but that was like a month delayed presentation. So at the mm-hmm. time, no one was really prepared to show that we could do this with chain sets. And the joke was, well, can we do this and can we deploy these or something like that? And, I've since, you know, forgotten the whole conversation, but I do remember the speakers, you know, kind of jokingly saying, well, why would you want to do it in a sandbox? Just do it in production. Sure. But yeah, so, so, and I have documentation evidence of this and everything. I have the beta documentation that shows what you can't do with that particular version of it. And metadata support was one of them. Okay. Um, but yeah, that, that was, I did confirm that in the spring release renotes with spring release renotes notes. N O T E S notes. <laughs> No, I was saying renotes. I know. I was like spring release. That's not worse. <laughs> <laughs> it is in there as being something that was added at that point in time. So you can actually deploy these. However, they're hidden. They're hidden away under flows. So there's no process builder metadata item. It's part of flows. Okay. Which is the current what they're calling today visual flows. Have you looked at the metadata for the for, for those? It's the same as everything else. It's fairly heavy XML. Um, but yeah, it's in there. Okay. I mean, is it, is it, does it appear to be well-structured though? Like it appears to be. Okay. Yeah. So you could actually, you can look at the metadata and the, you, you can actually make changes via metadata. Yeah. The, the thing to. about process builder is you would think that the XML would be pretty intense and complex, but really if you look at the way the process builder is built and the way you can design things in it, it's very structured and it's very simplistic. There's not a lot of, you know, custom paths or anything like that, you pretty much have to go through a certain flow. It's either this criteria, true or false. If true, then run these actions. Yeah. Next criteria, true or false, run these actions. So there's a lot of structure in, built into it. So the XML can actually be very structured as well. That's good. I mean, it's, that's one of the things, you know, Salesforce talks about being API first. And I mean, in some ways they are, but I generally, you know, I'd give them probably a, I don't know, maybe a B minus on API first because so many times things aren't available in the metadata API or, the, or they are in a way that's it's kind of buggy or broken. I mean, you, you, you know, you pull down the metadata and immediately just send it right back up and it won't, it won't work. Right. It's just bugs. I mean, if, if you're either not going to, or if you, you know, if there's a list of 150 different types of configurable items in Salesforce that aren't available in the metadata API, then it's kind of, I don't think you should call yourself API first. Not if you're an enterprise platform, Right. So what does it mean to be API first? Well, I'm personally, um, I am API mobile contract first. Wow. <laughs> I, I have no idea what that means. I uh, just, you know, it's everyone's what's the, what is it? What is that? There's, you know, contract first, there's API first, there's mobile first, responsive first, or I don't, you know, I have a hard so time many... believing Salesforce is not declarative first and rather than API first. What does that mean? Everything they do first? lately has always been, has been point and click, no software. You don't need to write code. 
Well, I think they're talking about before they even build it, like the first thing they build is the API. Mm. You know, what is, what is that? And that's not a bad way to build stuff. Like what is, what do we want this API to look like? And, and we kind of hypothesized that metadata was low on their development list. And maybe, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was just a way to say, let's get this out there and not make it deployable um, simply for the fact that we don't know what they're, what the community is going to do with this or how it's, how it's going to work with the things that they do. Yeah. I think that's a little, I think that's kind of an excuse though. I just think a lot of times getting the metadata right is not high is high on the priority. I mean, if something's got to slip, then I think they'd, even though they like to say they're API first, they're, they're going to let that slip. That's going to be the thing. And because we've seen it, they've done that before. All right. Takes, takes a while for something to be metadata enabled. All right. So moving on, the other thing I got wrong um, was I said that you could not update the object, the or you can update a field on the same object. So if your flow is based on an account, there wasn't a way for you to say, okay, you know, based on these rules, update this field on this account record to X, Y, Z. And it turns out that's not true either. And that's actually been there for a while. It's just that the way the UI is built, it's not intuitive on how to do that. Whenever you, whenever you're presented with a list of fields to modify, you click on, you click on the object. It brings up this little dialog, and it looks like all the other dialogs that you would use for criteria filtering and all those kind of things. And the way that looks is you have the object name, a little arrow, and a text box field. Um, it's actually kind of a combo field. And when you open that combo field, you get a list of fields, and that's the way it is for building criterias. Is you have the object. The object is not clickable, by the way, and you have the fields. And then you drop that down and you pick the field. It, it says, here's the field you picked, and you click OK. And so whenever I went to test and see how to update a field on that same object, I went through the same process. Well, it turns out what you really have to do is, at that point, the object is clickable. And you click on the object name, in this case, account, which is right next to the arrow. Because if you go into the dropdown, all you get are the child fields. You know, you get like... Reference fields, you get like references to the, you know, user object or to any child objects. Yep. So you click on the name that tells you, oh, you clicked at the only count. So you click OK. And then from there, you can start selecting fields on that object to update. And so yeah. I, I was able to kind of play around with that a little bit more. And after knowing that, um, you know, it wasn't that bad. But I think from, a, from the perspective of usability and someone just walking up to this, how would you know? Yeah. Well, I think it just ties into, I mean, you, you point out some other things on how the UI really needs some work on that. Yeah. And even some of the feedback during that discussion on Twitter was, you know, yeah, it took me a week to figure that out or yeah. someone had to show me how to do that, you know, which obviously is pretty bad for usability. What's the term? It's like, it's just not a, dis that feature was not very discoverable. It's right. wasn't. It didn't pass the drunk UI test. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you were drunk, you just accidentally would have clicked on it. Right. <laughs> So I've been spending a lot more time with the process builder. Um, I decided to try a few things that were um, examples and things. And I just, I decided to pick a few things that came to mind that people asked me to write triggers for to see if I could do them in the process builder. Um, the first one I did was just sync the account address down to the account, to the contact. Um, and that was pretty easy. And that's actually an example that everyone kind of uses for this when it comes to that. Cause you can update versus workflow. You can actually update a lot of child records. So you can update all the contacts if you wanted to of that account. And I've had to do this before as a trigger, which is 
if the account changes, you know, make sure the, the contacts address matches. Right. Um, and that works, that works pretty well. The only thing that, um, the only thing that kind of bugged me about it was it is kind of just a mass update and process builder through the course of its usage does impact your, your, um, your apex limits. Yeah. So, you know, loading up a process builder consumes DML, doing your updates consumes DML and things like that. So you're kind of, you're, you're kind of in a world where you have to start worrying about those limits, whereas workflow and everything else, you didn't really have to worry about those limits. You just kind of configured them and hope they work. But now you're getting into a world where you're updating mass records. You know, you're saying, hey, when this happens, update all of these records. So now you have the potential to start to run into those issues. That's interesting because the, the, the DML that the workflow did or anything it did never counted against your limits, right? I wanted to try to find something to confirm that because that was my impression as well, but I couldn't find anything that, that confirmed that. And maybe I just didn't look hard. The process builder does. Process okay. builder does. Yeah. Interesting. It's in the documentation that these will impact your, your usage limits. Yeah. And that seems fair. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's workflow or process builder or triggers. If you're doing stuff that takes resources, right? Queries, DML updates, you know, triggering a whole new set of triggers and workflow and all that. I mean, that's, you know, that's, it's, uh, just different means to the same end. So right. why, why not be charged for them? Um, so one of the other things I decided to try and do, which I kind of figured was not possible, but decided to try it anyways, was I thought, well, is there any way for me to create a roll up with process builder? Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, no, there, there really isn't. I couldn't find a way that would make that work. Um, even, even if I tried to, invoke a, an action and we could talk about that in a little bit <clears throat> the response that comes back still has to be handled by another process and flow we'll say yeah so there really wasn't a way for me to kind of say hey for all the accounts associated with this contact you know roll them up and update something mm. on the account maybe count the number of contacts or things like that yep. so so obviously that's not a feature that will i'm not even sure if that's a feature that will make it in there anytime well, soon they seem why? pretty pretty constrictive on those type of processes. Why would you even need a feature like that when you have such high quality third-party solutions to that problem? <laughs> Cause I don't like roll up helper. <laughs> you didn't have to name them. They're not sponsoring this show. It's a bane of my existence. So I couldn't do a roll up. If someone knows how to do a roll up with process builder, let me know. Cause that would be awesome. But I wasn't able to. Um, another thing I've been asked and I thought, well, another thing I've been touting with process builders, sending out notifications, setting out chatter posts and things like that. Um, I, you can obviously send, send a chatter post. You can send it to a group. You can send it to an individual. You can do all those things. One thing I couldn't find out how to do was to post on behalf of someone else. So you have some outside process or another user who's more of a, See, these run and these run in the context of the user that triggered the thing. Exactly. Right? So, so they don't have access so, to right. create something that's in say it's created by someone else. Right. So the, the, my requirement for the trigger that I had done maybe about a month ago was that anytime this record goes into this particular status or stage, I think is what it was. Then post to chatter as the owner of that record. Um, so that it's basically that owner is the one that, that did that. Yeah. But then that person would be like, what? I didn't post this. What the heck's going on? <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty of salespeople out there who are busy out there doing stuff. Yeah. And they have people who help them. They do, they do the data it, entry for it. Makes them. it look like they're doing work in the CRM, right? Yeah, it does. <laughs> 
But I think in other ways, it, it kind of just helped with traceability and all that kind of stuff in the communication. So I couldn't post on behalf of someone else. Again, someone knows how to do that. Let me know. This is all new stuff to me. I'm learning as you guys are learning. Um, but I wasn't able to accomplish that. Um, another requirement, especially, f- and it, it was actually the same trigger. Um, wh- I did the work and the client came back to me maybe about three weeks later and said, hey, we have a problem. The code is working, but it's sending the same message in more than one in more more than once in a day. And the issue was that for some for some reason the status was being changed back and then back to that status. Mm-hmm. So the status was kind of fluctuating depending on you know certain things, whatever yeah. the situation was. So what they wanted was they wanted the ability to say if if you've already sent that message today, don't send it again. And the message was very structured, so it was easy to kind of just do a quick query on the feed items for that object and say, you know, has it, did I already post something like this today? That kind of sucks and prevent the post. So a lot of querying just in a, to do in a in an open transaction, but yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe something, especially if you're doing it by searching like a text string or something. Yeah, and all it wasn't actually that bad because I could actually just pull the feeds for that day for that record and then loop through it really quick and then just do a quick text compare. So I wasn't actually using trying to query by that text does, does that doesn't raise your hackles at all though doing that it did yeah but it should <laughs> it, it felt wrong doing it i'll say it yeah. felt wrong but it was the only way i could think of to accomplish right. that it's a way to do it and as long as your volumes don't get right out of control then maybe yeah. it's maybe it's an okay solution and the volume wasn't really an issue i mean volume was really low for these type of messages the client was using chatter responsibly they weren't sending thousands of messages a day to users um so the, the amount of data i would have to filter through was minuscule um, but again, I, I, I couldn't accomplish that obviously because I couldn't query anything and then respond based on that query. Yeah. So that was, that was something I couldn't accomplish. It's interesting how these different, whether it's workflow or triggers or, you know, the flow stuff and process builder, but it's all different solving basically the same problem, but with a completely different model of how to do that. And each model has its own limitations right it's just i don't know Well, the thing about process building the reason i took the approach i did is that <clears throat> everyone thinks that oh process builder i don't need a developer anymore i don't need to write triggers anymore and and so i thought okay well let's see if that's true and that's kind of why i did the things i did i, I went through the things that people commonly ask me to write triggers for um and i'm finding that yeah you can do a lot of really cool things with process builder um, and you don't need a developer for those things, but there's a lot of things that, that commonly I get commonly asked for that you can't do with process builder. Um, another example I did, and this is my last one before I get into some, some more gripes about the UI of uh, things I've had, had issues with as I went through this was creating a skinny table. A what? A skinny table. Skinny table. Skinny table. Okay. So it's just a summarize summarization of data. So you have a lot of records, a lot of data. And you want to summarize it into a simple object, either for reporting or because you have some restrictive access to those other objects, but you want some of that data available to other people. So one of the ways to solve that is to create a summary table or a skinny table. Um, So I was able to do it for an object one-to-one. I was able to say, if this account exists or for this account, make sure there's a skinny table that has these four fields summarized on it. That was really easy to do. Um, a few issues I had with that is I couldn't selectively say if if this object already has a summary object or does not already have one, create it mm-hmm. and then update it with these fields. 
I, I couldn't find a way to do that, um, which is typically what I would do with that is I just have one trigger. It would go through and go, oh, is there a summary object? Yes or no. Yep. So that means that I have to have two process methods. I have to one, one that fires on insert to create the record and then one that fires on update to update all the summary mm. fields. That, that reminds me of, um, it's basically like you're almost like creating, say summary tables remind, or skinny, whatever you call them, kind of remind me of like cubes and, and, um, and data warehouses. Yeah. So, you know, they, and typically those things would run maybe on a nightly basis or something. And just do massive queries out of the online data, the transactional database, and then build all these cubes and and summaries and things. And then people, you know, the next day can do, you know, the business analysts or whoever can do reports off of all that summarized data. And because of that, I think my, I know you're just experimenting with a tool, but my, the way I would probably approach that problem is to do like a batch, like a nightly batch process or something that just goes through all the data and creates the summary tables. Yeah, in the cases where I have done this before, it was kind of data that was needed real time. It was data that um, was used by other processes, but because there was so much data involved, and that's the second part of the the process. I was able to do it one-to-one, but really for those type of tables, you're summarizing data from across multiple objects, and even across hmm. multiple objects that have related children. So there's, yeah. there's mass quantities there that are impacted. And it was something I really couldn't accomplish, and I, I didn't really expect to be able to. Um, because that does require, you know, querying of child objects and looping through them and summarize them. But again, I wanted to see what it could do and what it couldn't do. Um, so I was able to get it to kind of just do that type of work. Um, I also wanted to kind of see what happened when I had to do this because I had to break it up into two processes. So now I have two processes running. And by the way, there is a limit on the number of processes you can have, which I, I'll have to double check the documentation, but I think it's 50. And that's and across workflow. It, it's all the same number. Your limit is 50 across workflow, approval processes, process builder, and I believe flows. Per object, yes? Per object. That's weird. Why wouldn't they just use the, the governor limits? Yeah, those are already there for a reason. I mean, they, you know, that you're limited by time. You're limited by um, memory space. You're limited by number of queries. You're limited by number of you know, records returned, all that. I mean, all those safeguards are in place. Why not just have process build and all these things run in that context of limits that should protect the platform versus these arbitrary, like 50. Cause what does that mean? I mean, that could be 50 really intense things. That could be 50 really minor things, which wouldn't be fair to them to only let them have 50, you know? Right. That's weird. It just, it, it just makes a, I think it's an older limit. Yeah, and just, I think they just kind of extended it to just, here and uh, you know, they change the limits all the time. So it's possible they'll either increase it to where it doesn't matter or they might just remove it and then say, Hey, it's going to, if it's, you know, starts taking up this much CPU time, then it's going to throw an error. I think on workflow, the reason, that, and maybe this is the same way, the reason that it was just a, a kind of a, a not so precise, uh, which is just the number, you know, the number of workflow you can have is 50, right? Um, is because with workflow, you're more likely to have less technical people creating them, right? They're not doing Apex code. They're not looking at, you know, execution logs to see how their performance is. So you have to give them something simple, something they can understand, right? Which is how many workflow do you have? And if you told them, Hey, you just, you know, SQL this or, you know, whatever they're going to be, huh? Heap space. What? Right. So right. you have to keep it simple. Maybe that's why these maybe. Yeah. So, so I had to actually break that up into two and they both fired, um, obviously because there's no only on update, which you have with triggers. Yeah. 
Um, so I did have to have a create and a one that ran that on create and, and both. So my object actually ended up getting updated twice. Got updated the first time it was created with whatever fields it needed. And then it got updated again when that update trigger ran. So my object actually got updated twice, um, which could be problematic. The other thing, the other reason I had to break it up was because the current version, and I'm sure they'll change this soon, does not support the is new formula. Um, mm. In fact, it doesn't even support is changed in a formula expression. They actually move that as an operator for, for criteria. Instead of a, instead of a function? Right. Oh, so they removed it from, from the function. So you can, you can choose, you know, where it matches this formula or you can choose where it matches this criteria. Kind of like you do with workflow. Yeah. However, for some reason they decided to remove is changed from the formula and it's now, um, it's now part of the criteria. Mm. Um, unless I'm wrong about that again, but I'm pretty sure that's what I read about it. Cause I was trying to find it. Yeah. Um, because there was no is new that that's not supported. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll check to see if created date is null or changed or something, which turned, it was not something I could do. Yeah. Because by that point, by the time process gets that record, everything is there. It has an ID assigned. It has a created date assigned. It has an owner assigned. Really? Yeah. Even if it's a new record? Yeah. Versus what we've seen in triggers, unless I'm wrong again, that information tends to be blank. Um, yeah, because it's before the transaction is right. completed. So. so this must run in an after context, I guess we'll say. Yeah. Um, and that's another negative to it. We don't have a before context like we do with triggers. So we don't have the opportunity of kind of modifying the record without incurring additional DML. Again, again, I think it goes back to like, this is each of these things is a kind of a different approaches. This, the problem in a, in, in a, with a different model. Right. And I think the reason I'm just totally speculating that they don't have before context and after context, because that's confusing. That's a complex model. Right. Right. I mean, when you look at your befores and your afters and, and when, you know, or if you're in a situation where like you've got a, you know, you've got um, because of after triggers or whatever, you've got like an endless uh, recursion situation. Right. I mean, that's not, that model's too complex for the process builder, right? You're not really enabling business people to, to do much at that point, if it's that right. complex. I do. Th- so overall, I think, you know, after doing all this experimentation and everything, I so, think, no, go ahead. I think overall, I think Process Builder is going to be a great upgrade to workflow, meaning a great replacement. Okay. I don't, however, think it's going to be a replacement for triggers. And I know I've I've heard and seen some people say, "Oh, this is great. I don't have to have triggers anymore." I think for I think for certain triggers, you might not. But yeah, there's certainly well, a good workflow tool will replace the need for custom coding because you'll be able to declaratively do more. However, there are certain things. Complex processes, like we said, before context and all those kind of things, or querying multiple pieces of data and massaging that data into something, applying really complex business rules and things mm-hmm. um, on child data, not necessarily the object that you're triggering on. So I think things like that will still be very, very much a trigger job. Yeah. So you're saying uh, use the right tool for the job? The right tool for the job. Yeah. Triggers aren't going away. Nope. You'll still need us developers, us coders, we'll yeah. say, since we can't use developers anymore. Which I found something interesting. Uh, I don't know where I read this, but I re- it was in one of the help documents. And it referred to, it's, it clarified. It said declarative developer. Oh, God. So stupid. I, I, th- I think my, my uh, if I ever got a chance to interview Mark, one of my questions would be, do you regret <laughs> bastardizing the word developer? Because now you're having to go around saying coders. Now, why are you saying that he did it? 
in general. So that, that your marketing company. team in, in general kind of screwed us on developers on the name developer. Why is that? Just because they've, they've watered it down so much. Well, yeah, because now you're having to actually either clarify, you know, the type of developer that you are, or like Mark has been doing lately on every interview is going on, calling us coders. Hmm. He's had to use a different word. Yeah. Cause developer. Yeah. I guess the developer means someone who creates, you know, custom fields on an object, right? Yeah. It's a developer. So I have a couple of gripes about that. I kind of jotted down as I was going through these. Um, one of them was I couldn't really have multiple criterias, so I couldn't like say fall through. I guess you can create these fall through criterias where it's like either Cri- true or false criteria criteria. I'm a plural. Don't correct criteria. You just keep saying criterias. Criterias. It's criterias. <laughs> Every plural world has an S. <laughs> That's the English That's language. Your, you're simplifying. <laughs> you're simplifying the language. Uh, you would pick up on that, Mister Mister Has. Mister Has. Yeah, you picked up on that with ben, when Benioff was talking. Oh, but that was so weird. We has. We has. There you go. That was what it was. Um, so anyways, I you can create kind of fall through criteria, but you can't really say if this criteria, then this, and if this criteria, then this. So you can't really do kind of a, it, it's more of an if and else. You can't really do just kind of multiple criteria within the same process. Okay. So maybe I had a business process where I was like, if, if the stage is X, Y, Z, then do this. If the stage is A, B, C, then do this. Um, actually that's not a good example cause that's kind of a true false situation. But anyways, right. that was one of my gripes. I mm. take it for what it's worth. Yeah. Are these things that you think that they, in, in a version two, they'll probably start adding some of these things? No. Cause I think to keep the structure simple and, um, easy to understand, it probably shouldn't do that. Okay. I, I think the way they have it today is the right thing to do. Um, it's just for some reason in my head, I was like, if this is going to replace triggers, then I need to be able to do these type of criterias and execute them all in the same process. Criteria, <laughs> criteria, uh, criteria so in the same process. So let's, let's do a little grammar lesson here. Singular. You know what singular is? Criterion. So you have a criterion and you have many criteria. Uh-huh. This is why people listen to the podcast. It's for our excellent grammar tips. <laughs> And I truly do not Actually, care. I think there's already, I think there's already, I think there's already a podcast for that anyway. So <laughs> grammar Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So my next gripe is as I was going through these and creating all these different processes, it became unclear which one was active. Uh, because once you clone a process that becomes the entry in your process builder view and it's deactivated because mm. I didn't activate it. Okay. The active one is still there. But you have to go into manage versions to see it. So it's it's a bit confusing because I have this version that's inactive. And if I was researching, why is this happening? I thought I turned that off. You, you'll go in and you'll see deactive. You might have a v- different version that's active, hidden mm. away. Um, so I think they probably need to change that to where you have a a list of active ones and a list of inactive ones. And you can see them both at the same time. Um. Deleting was a bit cumbersome, and in some cases I couldn't delete, and I, I don't really fault them for this, but basically if you're going to try to delete a process and it's been activated, you can't delete it until tw- after 12 hours. If it's been, after it's been deactivated? If it's ever been active okay. and you try to delete it, it can't be deleted until 12 hours after it's been deactivated. I wonder if that's for if you have long-running batch jobs. Well, no, because if you have any scheduled jobs or anything like that running, 
you have to wait till those finish before you can even, I believe, even Deploy. deactivate it. Or, okay. So as long as there's some batch running or batch scheduled, you can't deactivate it. And then once you deactivate it, it takes 12 hours before you can actually delete it. And I'm not sure if that's some kind of a backend provisioning issue or the way that, you know, the, the code is actually distributed, how that works. I don't fault them for that, but it's it's kind of one of those things you have to be careful or be aware of. I mean, they just want you to really make sure that you want to delete it. Yeah. And then this is my ultimate gripe. The biggest thing that I had, the one that kind of made me want to pull my hair out as I was building these things. And that was, you have to click save for everything. You have to be a Nazi about saving. If there's a save button, click it before you click on anything else. Because I was configuring process or actions and things like that. And I'd be like, oh, what, what was that pram- that criteria? Click, my stuff is gone. Because I didn't save it. It doesn't warn you before you I wasn't it? exiting the process. I was just clicking around within the process to oh. see what my parameters were for the previous one. So maybe I had another action. I, I needed to see what it was. Or I was just clicking around just to remind myself of something. And doing so, as soon as you click away, and if you didn't save, there's no warning. There's nothing that says, hey, you're about to click away from this. Do you want to save these this, cri- this criteria or this action you configured? It's not there. It's just gone. So... You're going to lose a lot of time and a lot of sleep because you've been clicking around and you didn't save your stuff. Yeah. That's weird because I feel like nowadays the model seems to be going to automatic saves. Um, I am surprised. Web, even web apps. I was surprised that I was, and this happened to me multiple times and I was aware of it after a few times, but it was just one of those things where I think I'm, maybe it's me. Maybe it's me that I'm used to things auto saving. Um, Maybe yeah. there's someone out there who, who's just really nervous about these apps and is always saving yeah. and they'll never run into this. Well, re- regardless of which model, you sh- certainly should uh, not violate the principle of least surprise, right? Like it should do what you would think it would do. Yeah. Well, th- this has been an exercise of things I thought it would do and wouldn't do. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, some of the feedback I've heard asking around on process builders is people like the idea of it, I think. And they've tried to use it. And they'll either say, hey, I had a bunch of errors and I, I, I just couldn't get it to work. Or it was just too complex. I, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and I don't know if that's an issue with the way they're rolling it out and people just need more training. Um, maybe that's what they'll go to Dreamforce and they'll learn all about the process builder and they'll become ninjas at it. Um, but I think right now, as it stands, even with all the user groups and things that they've been putting on, it hasn't reached people in a way that makes process builder valuable to them just yet. Yep. And also to be, I think time will, will tell on this, but it'll be interesting to see how process process builder affects um, all kinds of the runtime characteristics of uh, triggers and everything. Like yeah. tim, meaning like, can you, can you simply by adding a process or a flow, whatever these are, uh, can you, could that bump a, you know, a trigger into taking more time, CPU time than what's allowed or right. running more queries or whatever. Because that's one of those problems that like, seems like sure enough you're going to have. Well, the nice thing about these is it does have a very specific option that's off by default, which is it can run multiple times um, within a transaction. Yeah. And that's off by default, which yeah. is perfect. Because um, obviously that's something you want to you be conscious of. Uh, you're consciously saying, yes, I want this to run multiple yep. times. So. Yeah, at least you have, to, you have to specifically turn that on. Right. And because it, a lot of times, I mean, you do want that. I mean, if, um, if you really depend on anytime a record's change, your process running to do something with new values or whatever, right. Um, you would want it to run multiple times, but 
then you have to kind of know what you're doing because that's kind of a power tool at that point. Exactly. Yeah. So the the last thing that I started getting into because I, I've developed this theory, this hypothesis, this grand vision, um, seeing that, okay, triggers aren't going away. We still need them. But maybe there's a better way for these two tools to work together. Maybe there's a way that this might actually solve some issues that we have today. And that is you can't deactivate a trigger. I mean, you can, but you have to deploy it. You can't go into production and go, oh, crap, this thing I deployed is blowing everything up. I need to quickly turn this off. You can with Process Builder. Just deactivate it. So let me, let me stop you, though, and let me ask you this. Do you think uh, the fact that you, once you deploy a trigger, you can't easily deactivate it? Do you think that's a good or a bad thing? I think it's a bad thing. I think you should be able to deactivate those, and I think code should be written in a way that you can deactivate them without deleting them, and everything will still test out. Why do you think that you can't deactivate them in production easily? I don't know. Because it completely changes everything, and you would need to have all your tests rerun and pass. It, they all had to pass with a trigger there, or you wouldn't be able to get it there. If you're going to turn a trigger off, then they all need to be run again and test Not again. Not true. Not the way I write my, my triggers. I always write my triggers business logic first, and then I automate it with a trigger. So I put an entry in the trigger. So even my unit testing gets written before I even enable the trigger. But things can be, other code can be dependent on what your trigger does. And, that, and that, uh, that's what I'm saying. Simply by removing a trigger could cause other assertions to fail that depended on that trigger doing something. And that's true. But here was my idea, or here was my theory, was that a lot of times a trigger comes to me for development not because the client realizes it needs to be a trigger, but because someone went into workflow and said, hey, I tried to do this, but I couldn't get it to do X, Y, Z. Why do I always say X, Y, Z, by the way? I don't know. I use this as an example. I need a different, I need a different sample data word. <laughs> you, could, you could start saying ABC. ABC. No, then I'll overuse ABC. I, yeah. I, do, I do X, Y, Z and ABC. I use those interchangeably. Anyways, so my theory was that wouldn't it be great that you know, the admins or declarative developers could go in and, and say, this is the criteria for this business logic. And we modularize our code a little bit more beyond what we're doing today so that it's invocable using the new invoke methods or invocable methods. Mm -hmm. And now you have this block of code that does nothing but handle business logic that's easily testable. And it can exist in the system, whether it's being used or not, and it's testable. They can use it in multiple processes. They can use it in multiple ways. All they have to do is define the trigger criteria. Yeah. However, in practice, the tool is just not there for it. It's not ready for it. Yeah. Um, you can create invocable methods and that all works, um, but it's run within that context. There's no before context. So I can't, I can't not avoid DML operations. I have to run, I have to do an update if I'm going to update that same record. Mm. Um. I can't really, I, I can pass data into it. So I can, I can grab all the accounts and pass that into it. Um, but I can't really pass data back. So I can't create business logic that has multiple stages in it. Yeah. I can't say. You can't chain things, right? Yeah. I can't yeah. say, I have a business rule that says, go grab these type of accounts. And then I can't, I can't take that in the next step in the process and say, take this result and do these things. What, what happens is it requires you to have a flow at that point. And that's, that's also what's interesting about invocable methods. If you use an invocable method with process builder, it has to return void. It has to return null. You can also pa only pass one parameter to it, I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> so, because I did that, I, I had it return data just to see what would happen. 
And what it, it aired on me, the flow, the yeah. process aired on me and said, Hey, there's no flow to handle this data you sent back. So I can't run this. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't error when I saved it. It only aired when it ran, when it executed. Another reason not to do it in production. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's weird. Cause it's, I see what Salesforce is going for. And it just dawned on me why they use this term developer the way they do now, because they want to be able, they want it to seem like non-technical people can be, Salesforce is such an amazing platform that non-technical people can be developers. It's that good of a platform. It's that intuitive. It's that easy to build a system. Anyone, well, to, anyone can be a developer. To a certain point, there's some truth in there. But it turns out, no matter what sugar you sprinkle on top of, you know, what gets boiled down to byte code, turns out that code is a pretty damn good way of expressing business logic. It's concise. It's, it's uh, flexible. It's modular. Yeah, those are all true statements. And if it's written well, it's concise. Yeah. I mean, at one point is declarative getting to the point where you're just going to be scripting. Well, every time you add a layer of, of declarativeness or sugar or whatever it is, you're, you're abstracting details into a simpler model but you're also foregoing power when you do that. Right. And, and we could use middleware tools as an example. You have right. all these declarative tools to map fields to fields, and you have some built-in functions that can do some really cool things. But if you want to apply true business logic, you either code it in the form of some kind of scripting language they support, um, or you, you kick off another external process to process that, that data for you. Right. Now, I thought that in the invocable methods... This is invocable methods are called with the rest API. They're used three different ways. Okay. They're used. They can be used with rest. So you can invoke them with, with rest calls. Um, so you can have, you know, client side script running on your page that will invoke it and run that, run that code. Um, you can use them from flows. And again, you can return data to the flow and, and then have it loop through that. If you use it from within things. a flow, does it run in the same transaction that the flow runs in? Yes. Because if you call it via REST, that's going to be a separate transaction. Right. Okay. Within flows, it'll be within the same transaction. And within the process builder, it'll be within the same transaction. Okay. Now with process builder, you can't have it return data. So that means you're going to have to add a layer on top of your method. So you'll have to have a layer that invokes it. If you want to promote reuse or just have a good modular system, Make sure your business logic is in, in a class. And then all your classes that invoke, that have your invoke, invocable methods attribute, do nothing more than call that class. Yeah. Um, because you're going to have to, you're going to have to choose whether or not to return data or not. Otherwise, you'll have to pass that to a flow and all that kind of stuff, which may be what you need to do. Yeah. Just depends. Just something to think about. So, yeah, it's interesting that that, that one method kind of acts differently in those three different contexts. It seems like it should be a very specific attribute for each one of those different contexts. Yeah, that, that, and I don't know enough about those to say, but that, that kind of seems wrong. It kind of rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. So that's invocable methods with mm. process builder. So I was a bit disappointed because I was kind of hoping that the idea would work, that the idea that I could say, hey, just go and configure how you want this to run and when you want this to run, you know, because it would be nice if, you know, right now, we're doing this logic for one record type and maybe they decide, or we have no record types and we just always run this business logic. And maybe later on they add a record type. Well, rather now, rather than having to recode for that record type or, you know, they change the name or something. Mm -hmm. Now they just change it declaratively 
and that business logic still runs, which you probably still can do depending on what your needs are and how it's updating and what it's updating. Yeah. Um, but as a, as a kind of way to solve that problem ultimately for me, it's just, it's not there yet. It won't do it. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't want to be too cynical. I mean, I just don't, sometimes I don't know how to, to perceive these things. I think they're, they're things that again, in Salesforce, you always got to keep this in mind. They've got to keep growing as fast as possible. That's why they switch from using a revenue metric to a deferred revenue. Cause it's a better looking number right now. Um, and just because where they're at with certain things with, they get complicated with their finances. Um, certain th- things have to do with, um, them depending on interest rates and, the, you know, stock based compensation, all the stuff like they've, they've just, they've got to keep revenues growing uh, is, is, you know, at a pretty fast clip. And so because of that, I think you see them doing things that are really just all designed to bring, um, more companies into the Salesforce ecosystem mm-hmm. and, the, and things that demo really well, because that's part of how you do it. You've got to keep adding features, adding features, adding features, right? Right. To keep bringing people in. You've got to keep knocking because it's selling is all about eliminating objections, right? And the more tools you have, the more cool things you can demo about how, you know, with Salesforce, you can, everyone can be a developer and all this. I mean, it just, it's a good, it's a, you know, you want to have the best story you can take as many objections away as possible and have all these things that demo really well. And process builder is one of those things that demos really well. It seems really cool. Um, just like the, some of the, like the visual workflow thing and, and even just the schema builder. Right. And in reality, like I don't use schema. I mean, I do sometimes, but really more, I mean, again, for, you know, non-trivial orgs, you know, the, really the way to do this is it's all got to be tracked basically it's source code. So like your data structures and your code and everything needs to be tracked and needs to be version controlled. It needs to have, you need to, you need to have a, a deployment pipeline where you've got testing along the way and, and it needs to be repeatable. Right. Right. And if you need to roll something back or you, you need to find out exact, you know, you need to uh, bugs introduced and you want to find out exactly what, what point, you know, you need to be able to figure that out. Right. If something, you know, and that includes not only just the code, but the, the data structures as well, the, you know, your objects and your, just all the stuff that kind of falls under that metadata umbrella. Right. Which is also why everything needs to be able to be, every part of the platform needs to be metadata enabled or it can't participate in any of that process I just described. Um, but because of that, when you're really building, you know, serious orgs, you find yourself not using the, all these point and click stuff. It's like, you remember, um, you know, any of the GUI designer tools, they're kind of cool at first. They demo great, right? Drag and drop oh, yeah. a, a GUI. But when it gets onto it, you end up going down to the whatever language is underneath that builds it, whether it's a, an imperative language or like an XML declarative type language. Yeah. Because um, once you hit a certain level of complexity, they just, those tools are not useful anymore. They demo right. well. They look great. They, they sell licenses. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. Oh, man, we're running long already. And there's a lot of stuff to do, but I think we might should hold some of it. Yeah, we probably should. What are we at now? Hour 30 minutes. Oh, yeah, we should call it a, we should call it a day. Yeah. We should call it a day. A good day. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> And to that, I say, good day, sir. Good day, sir. I can hear cars. I can hear that kick drum. You hear any bass bass guitar? No. It's all you hear is the kick drum. 
really proud of that kick drum, isn't he? That is a really crummy sound. 